Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good afternoon. Welcome to the RA. My name is Kira Milmoat. I'm the temporary events and lectures programmer here. I'm delighted to introduce our speaker for today's lunchtime lecture, um, Professor Dawn Addis. Dawn is Professor Emerita of the History and Theory of Art at the University of Essex, where she taught from 1968 to 2008. Her research concentrates on surrealism and on Latin American art. She has published several books, including um, books on artists Salvador Dali and Marcel Duchamp. In 1980, she published a long essay on Cornell for the first major retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. She's also organised or co-created many exhibitions in the UK and internationally, such as Salvador Dali, the Centenary Exhibition, and The Colour of My Dreams, The Surrealist Revolution in Art. In 2013, she was made CBE for services to higher education. Our exhibition, Joseph Cornell Wanderlust, is the first solo exhibition of this artist's work in the UK for almost 35 years. It brings together 80 of Cornell's most remarkable boxes, collages and films, some never before seen outside of the USA. In today's event, Dawn will discuss Joseph Cornell's relationship with surrealism, his engagement with the concept of time and the ongoing dialogue in his work between the ephemeral and the eternal. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Professor Dawn Addis. Thank you. Thank you very much for that introduction. And I'd like to thank the team here for indulging me in an attempt to show a bit of a film later on, and also fragments from a book. So it's going to, it might be a slightly bumpy lecture in the sense that I'll be switching uh, visually from one mode to another. Anyway, I hope, you'll, you'll, uh, I hope it'll go okay. Um, time is, is, is actually a huge subject, and I think I would never have attempted it, uh, particularly in relation to Cornell, had I thought more carefully about it to begin with. Um, this is perhaps his most literal way of addressing time. It's one of his sand fountains. There aren't actually any sand fountains in the exhibition, and this is not a criticism of the exhibition, but actually I think something I feel was a very wise decision, because there is an effect sometimes with Cornell's works that you actually, you not only want to, but you need to pick them up, shake them, turn them upside down, and so on. And of course you can't do that in an exhibition, which is a shame because I think he always wanted people to be able to handle the works. So I'm framing this talk with a little group of works at the beginning, which are what might call time-based works, and I shall end with some at the end as well. So the sand fountains, um, this one, you can see the pile of yellow sand in the bottom of the box. And what you're meant to do is turn it upside down so that the sand goes up into the container part of the top where there's a hole, and then it will pour down into the broken glass. Obviously a reference to an old-fashioned way of measuring time in the hourglass, you know, an a glass full of sand, turn it upside down, and you can tell how long it's been running for. But of course, in Cornell's time, there's no actual measurement, but it's just the notion, in a sense, of running time that he wants you to experience. This is uh, an attempt to show you what it might look like. On the left is another of the sand fountains with the sand pouring 
out into the glass and then into a pile on the ground. Um, on the right is another work that needs to be handled in a way which is in the exhibition. Um, this is the untitled so-called Starfish, which has origins in all sorts of different forms and formats, um, not least in, in kind of sailors' boxes where little, little mementos and treasures were kept by, by sailors. But these, so these, um, these examples of the, of the sandworks are just a way of starting, as I say, with the most literal references to time. There are very subtle ways, as well as literal ways, in which Cornell makes time the subject of his work, and also, in a sense, its medium. I've chosen some passages from various writers which are on the handout, which everybody, I hope, has got a copy of. There are a couple of quotations from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, a passage from a Nabokov short story, a couple of extracts from Cornell's diaries, and particularly a passage from Marcel Proust. And the more I thought about Cornell and time, the closer it seemed to me his sensibility is to Marcel Proust, to A la recherche du temps perdu, in, in search of lost time, his, his famous extremely long, I don't know if anybody has actually read it, uh, a book, but it seemed to me that was important. So I'll come back to that quotation from Proust and hope to make the connection work. Okay. Now, I've chosen these passages not because I want to, as it were, illustrate Cornell through them, but to suggest the, the variety and the subtlety of the ways in which Cornell engages with this incredibly complicated and difficult issue of time. In his diaries, he quotes several times from the T.S. Eliot Four Quartets. He notes a few lines in particular, and one of the lines that he notes is the moment in and out of time. And I think this idea, which Cornell's great-nephew actually referred to when he opened the exhibition here uh, a couple of weeks ago, he talked about his sense of, of his great-uncle being very often out of time. I mean, like be, having been able to sort of step into some other place, which I thought was, was very, very interesting. And then I tracked down this line, not, not too difficult, it's actually on the first page of the four quartets, and it's the first of the texts on, on the handout. To apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint. For most of us, there is only the unattended moment, the moment in and out of time. Distraction fit, lost in a shaft of sunlight, the wild time unseen, or the winter lightning, or the waterfall, or music heard so deeply that it is not heard at all. And I think in the four quartets, in a sense, sort of pessimistic as they are, there's so often the sense that there is a consolation to the kind of mortal running of time in a work of art, in a poetry, in, uh, in beauty. And, and I feel that that is something that, that Cornell probably was very, very alert to. Now, not only did I saddle myself with the notion of time for this lecture, but also with surrealism. And that I uh, 
you know, I, I will say something about it. I have written at some length about Cornell and surrealism 35 years ago. So I'm not going to repeat all that. That was in the catalogue of the exhibition at MoMA, which also travelled to the Whitechapel. But I will say one or two things about Cornell and surrealism. This is the, the cover that Cornell designed for um, the exhibition at the Julian Levy Gallery in 1932, his, his first exhibition of surrealism called Surrealisme, January 1932. And as you can see, Cornell has taken a, a, a kind of petticoat and turned it into a lily-like trumpet that this boy is blowing and announcing surrealism. So there is Cornell uh, at the very beginning, if you like, of the appearance of surrealism, this movement in New York in 1932. I think you could say that Cornell absorbed the principle of juxtaposition from surrealism, as well as the making of objects from ready-made materials. The bringing together of two distant realities on a plane foreign to both and drawing a spark from their contact. That's how the surrealist image was defined in Breton's first manifesto of surrealism in 1924. And the most famous example of this, the one that the surrealists were always quoting, and which I'm sure is extremely familiar to most of you, is a phrase from um, a 19th century, a, a kind of poem maudit, a, a, a cursed poem, called The Songs of Maldoror by L'Autreamont. And the phrase went, as beautiful as a chance encounter of a sewing machine and an umbrella on a dissecting table. Sewing machines begin to appear very frequently in surrealist work. And as you can see here, they appear in one of Cornell's early collages, probably about 1931, on the bottom. Now, Cornell... I think it's, so it's no coincidence that some of his first collages, which use old engravings in a manner very similar at first sight to Max Ernst, and they incorporate a, a sewing machine. Now, it's obvious, in a way, that these early collages made from 19th century engravings by Cornell owe a great deal to Max Ernst, to one of the key surrealist artists. But I'm going to argue that there is a fundamental difference between Ernst and Cornell, not in order to divorce Cornell from surrealism, but simply to say that, that his, 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 he took a different route. He was doing something different. It doesn't mean he was any less, as it were, indebted to the, uh, to the, to the freedom that surrealism brought the artist to work in any medium. So to try and explain... Oh, I, well, I particularly like the tiny little engraving which is in the exhibition of the man wearing a calendar on his head, watching what I thought at first was a jumping bean, but Sarah assures me it's a spinning coin of some, of some kind. Um, a, little, a little moment of concentration, a little moment of absorption in something in front of you, which is incredibly important to all Cornell's work. This is uh, from... La Femme Sans Tête, The Hundred-Headed Woman, Germinal, My Sister, The Hundred-Headless Woman, in the background, in the cage, The Eternal Father. There should be two other Max Ernst collages there. One of them shows a dissected beetle turned upside down and floating. So it's been, it's been turned into a kind of air balloon or a ship. 
It's also very disorienting because this sort of floating ship is actually up in the air. It, it's a sort of steamship. So what Ernst is doing is transforming a material, an object, an image, into something different. It's a radical difference. Whereas with Cornell, Cornell creates visual rhymes. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, operate on the notion that there's a sort of uh, a clash between two images or a, a sort of transformation of the material. So in, in this one, uh, he's got, you've got the sewing machine, and then, which is sewing up a, a, a silky robe, the woman, and then in the lower left-hand corner, there's a corn on the cob, and it's clear that what Cornell is thinking about, I think, is the silkiness of the interior of the corn on the cob being like the dress. Now, you wouldn't... I mean, that's still a, a sort of good surrealist image, you know, um, a, a silk dress like a corn on the cob. It's, uh, it's two very dissimilar realities. But it's the similarities, if you like, that Cornell is working on. And I think that um, it's, and it's not disorienting. Most of Max Ernst's collages are very disorienting. There's a kind of gentle dépaysement in Cornell, but not a radical one. And there's also very often um, a tremendous sense of humor. And I think that Cornell's relationship with surrealism was and remained very ambiguous. Uh, it, it wasn't simply a matter of an initial influence transcended. Um, this is, this is a, a soap bubble set. This is, there are some wonderful examples of the soap bubble sets in the exhibition here. It's one of Cornell's most sort of treasured tropes, if you like, one that he returns to again and again. It's a very clear example here of the pipe in the foreground and the, as it were, the soap bubble actually becomes a geographical map of the moon. So the soap bubble becomes the moon. And I would just say here, as, as a kind of sort of in, introduction to what I'm going to say later on about the boxes, that however self-contained they are, they are also themselves fragments emblems of a lost wholeness. And I think Cornell's echoing images, the soap bubble that is like the globe, like the moon, like the solar system, the endless visual analogies that stretch to infinity within a box and outside itself to each other, are like a kind of endless attempt to lasso the universe, which, like time, is always beyond our grasp. This particular box was included in the very major exhibition in New York Museum of Modern Art in 1936 called Fantastic Art, Dada, and Surrealism. And you can see it in a, in a larger installation that Cornell made for that exhibition, which is not just the box, but it, there's another, there's a kind of um, little, little um, traveling wooden case, sort of like a little pharmacy case, and then lots of little glass uh, bell, bell jars, miniature bell jars containing fragments of things, lots of little bits and pieces. There's a, there's a curious um, aspect to this. Um, in the exhibition catalogue, 1936, Cornell was described as an American constructivist. But then very curiously, in the 1947 edition of the catalogue, he's called an American maker of surrealist objects. Self-taught, author of two surrealist scenarios... Um, with a composition of objects photographed with additional effects by George Platt Lines, and the additional effects are the photograph in the top right-hand there, which was in the exhibition catalogue. At the time of this exhibition, though, 
Cornell wrote to Alfred Barr, the director, and said, I would appreciate your saying that I do not share in the unconscious or dream theories of the Surrealists. While fervently admiring much of their work, I have never been an official Surrealist, and I believe that Surrealism has healthier possibilities than have been developed. The constructions of Marcel Duchamp, who the Surrealists themselves acknowledge, bear this out, I believe. Now, commentators have tended to fasten on this letter of Cornell's um, in order to separate Cornell from Surrealism. Um, and I, I don't want to do that, because I think that's quite misleading, both from the point of view of Cornell's work and of Surrealism itself. It's quite true that Cornell was never an official Surrealist. Um, it's difficult to see how he could have been, given that there was no group in New York. Um, and when uh, the, the Surrealists in exile came to New York, he kind of kept his distance. He wasn't one to sign manifestos. He wasn't one to, uh, to join in sort of games of truth about sexuality. That was not his way of going about things. If, it, if there's eroticism in his work, which of course was central to so much of Surrealism, it's a very, it's a very hidden, hidden one, except for the later nudes, of course. Um, but he maintained very close friendships with Duchamp, Dorothea Tanning, Lee Miller, and Matter. And he certainly met Breton. Um, there's a very dry description by Isabel Waldberg, one of the New York Surrealist group, of attending a film evening organized by Cornell in the studio of the painter De Diego in April 1944. And she says, le tout surrealisme, that means all the Surrealist big, big shots were there. Um, André Breton and Charles Douy, who were actually at war with each other at the time, passed in front of one another without speaking. There were a few film collages that Isabel found slow and boring, but the Americans present found marvellous. I'll show you one of the films, um, if I have time, a little later on. So it's not that I want to box, box Cornell into the Surrealist corner, but I think it's important to recognise that Surrealism... Uh, it was really Surrealism that made his unique career possible. He was the first artist to work exclusively with found, collected, chosen materials, mediums, if I can call them that. And what he did with these materials was entirely original, as was his appropriation of, um, of, of film. But I think, I think to, to sort of try and make, make a little bit clear what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that Surrealism was not a visual style so you can't detach Surrealism from it by saying he's not like Dali or he's not like Ernst. It opened up roots and was absolutely fundamental to Cornell's career. Um, this is a page from the Surrealist journal Minotaur, which, uh, and of course, Surrealism was, uh, Cornell was included in the 1938 exhibition of Surrealism in Paris. Uh, it just says objects in the catalogue, so you don't know exactly what they were. Um, but in the, in the magazine, you can see one of the glass bell jars with a hand and a rose and a fan inside it. Beside um, a, a, a one of Marcel Duchamp's um, the three standard stoppages on the right and a photograph by Belmer on the bottom right. So the variety of, um, of the artist's responses to surrealist ideas was extremely great. Um, I just want to say a little bit about objects because the Surrealist object and how Cornell's work does and doesn't relate to them. I, I really want to, want to emphasise his originality, but at the same time, how the Surrealist object was a kind of 
a generative thing for him. Uh, these are two examples of the surrealist object functioning symbolically, which was Dali's way of describing the objects. Uh, each of these, the Valentin Hugo, which is two gloved hands with the, the red glove, just gently lifting the glove on the other hand. It's a very, very suggestive image. Um, and on the right is Dali's own shoe, which had a mechanism that was supposed to move, didn't actually move, but it, it, it had a, an erotic um, image on the sugar lump, which has got a shoe on it, which is dipped into a glass of milk. There's a whole, a whole sort of fetishistic cycle of ideas behind this, which I won't go into. But, uh, and Dali recognized when he presented this idea of the serious object functioning symbolically in 1931, that there was a very important source, two, two sources. One was Duchamp's ready-mades and assisted ready-mades, and the other was Giacometti's suspended ball, um, which, which again is a very, very suggestive object, which looks as if it might move, and you would, you would, spit, you would um, slide the, uh, um, the sort of gouged ball over the melon underneath. It's a very interesting work, actually, because it clearly has a very, very sort of sexual frisson, but at the same time, you're not quite sure which is male and which is female. So it's quite, it's a very suggestive work. Now, Cornell did once make an object, which I think owes something to Giacometti, but it wasn't a success, frankly. Um, natalité or birth rate, 1940. It looks slightly better in the photograph on the right, but on the whole, it was an, an experiment that Cornell did not follow through. Uh, he was much, much happier with the contained world of the box, I think. Um, and he was not really, uh, he was not really following the notion of the symbolic function of an object. Um, he was interested, of course, in movement, as I've already said, but but not in the uh, not in the very definitely um, sexualized imagery of the surrealist object. So I'm just now coming back to the uh, to the boxes. Um, to this, which is actually my favourite box of all, and I'm very glad to say it is in the exhibition. It's called Toward the Blue Peninsula, um, and it shows you... Uh, it's, it's as though you're looking into something which itself is looking out onto something else. It's a very interesting kind of liminal space between... Uh, bet bet between the spectator and something beyond. The cage is open... There's a notion of flight as well as entrapment. And in the bottom of one of the... There are two versions of this. <laughs> and in the bottom of one of them is a little white feather, as it were, left by the bird that, that flew away. Uh, not in this one here, unfortunately. But, um, so, and, and that is... The title of that comes from the poem by Emily Dickinson, um, two lines of which uh, are in, in the catalogue, here to, to explain the title, uh, Emily Dickinson, with whom Cornell felt, I think, a, a tremendous affinity, this rather isolated but um, brilliant poet uh, who lived alone and wrote passionate love poems. And I quote from the, the poem, it might be easier to fail with land in sight than gain my blue peninsula to perish of delight. Um, now, I just want to look uh, more specifically at some of Cornell's engagements with the theme of time. 
this is a collage that he made using the uh, Magritte painting, Time Transfixed. Uh, and you can see he's, he's made a very geometrical uh, structure for it, and he's added something in the lower left-hand corner, middle corner, which I think is a slice of cake, but I'm not absolutely sure. Um, and rather disconcertingly, uh, in another version, or not another version, it's a series, um, he's put a Renaissance angel playing um, an early sort of form of guitar instead of a cake. I don't know why. I mean, sometimes the, the additions are really quite mysterious, but I believe this sequence was, was made after the death of his brother Robert and are a kind of homage to Robert. And the idea that you can transfix time, um, move out of time, uh, is, I think, something that runs through them. Um, this is just another example. This is a box. It's rather difficult to see, I'm afraid, from here. It's a, it's a kind of mixture of a, of, a, of a sun box and a soap bubble box. And it's called an analemma showing by inspection the time of sun rising and sun setting, the lengths of days and nights. So this is a rather, again, a rather sort of literal use of something which Cornell then makes, I mean, he sets off this sort of chain of connections of, the, uh, of this, this circular analemma. One of my favorites of these is the... Uh, the untitled aviary with watch faces, 1949. Um, there are a number of aviaries in, in the exhibition, and this is, this is a particularly fine one. All the watch faces have had their hands removed, as you can see. And uh, so this is a kind of time out of time, again. Uh, so the, and the watch faces, uh, Cornell collected clocks, bits of watches and so on. And I think you can see, this is, this is a photograph of his, um, well, his studio store with all the boxes of materials that he used to make, his, um, uh, to make his works. And you can see that the glasses, habitat birds, um, plastic shells and seashells and on the far left, halfway down, there's a box that says watch parts. I don't know exactly what was in it, but presumably, um, pre presumably things like those uh, handless uh, watch faces, which are quite, again, it's quite, it's quite disconcerting. Um, there, there is a close-up of this oh, extraordinary white box. I mean, the, the, the emphasis is on, on the white. And I think it's... Um, it's interesting to, to compare that with the, with the compass boxes. This is a compass box called of Solomon Islands. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of running on the notion of time and space and the way that Cornell, in this quite, uh, quite modest way, engages with the big questions of our time. There's a note in his diaries where he says he's gone to see de Kooning, the American abstract expressionist painter. He's gone to see de Kooning, and they've talked for a couple of hours, and he's noted down Einstein, time, space, etc. He doesn't say any more, unfortunately. <laughs> it would have been nice exactly what they said. But I think that I think one could, uh, one could certainly you know, play on 
some of the visual and formal similarities of the, of the, of the watches and the compasses uh, in terms of the idea of, um, there's another object, Rose de Vaughan, 1942 to 43, uh, another compass box with the little, the little compasses. He had seen a whole lot of compasses in a shop and also, I think, a collection of boxes. And going home on the train, he had suddenly thought, ah, oh, I could put these together, make a, make a, sort of, make a compass box. So time and, and space. Now, before I talk about this great Penny Arcade um, box, I want to try to play a little bit of the film Rose Hobart. Rose Hobart is... Uh, a film that Cornell made, in, he showed it in 1936. It, it was quite unprecedented at the time. He took uh, a Hollywood film called East of Borneo. It's one of the great Hollywood films of uh, jungle adventures with a strong woman character at the center. Her name was Rose Hobart and Cornell clearly kind of fell in love with her in the film. And so when he found a copy of this film, in, a, in, a, in a, a warehouse that stored old um, celluloid films in the 30s. He acquired it, and he cut it up, he remade it, just basically focusing on her. He interspersed these sequences with her with other little things that he had found. I mean, it's, it's, it's a complicated <coughs> film, actually, in, in many ways. Um, he showed it in Julian Levy's gallery in 36, and... Dali, Salvador Dali, and his wife Gala were present. Um, and at the end of the showing, Dali leapt his feet and shouted, Salo, bastard, you, you've stolen my idea. <laughs> um, and then he said, well, actually, I hadn't told anybody of my idea, so you couldn't have actually stolen it. <laughs> but it, it was the thing that I was, I was going to do next. So, I mean, I think that's quite interesting because it shows how... Cornell was somehow actually absolutely in the vein of what surrealism was experimentally trying to do. It wasn't actually a silent film, but Cornell didn't have the soundtrack, so it appears to be a silent film. And he added some Brazilian jungle music to, to sort of emphasise the exoticism of it. But he, he cuts it up in such a way that he completely destroys the narrative. There is, there is no longer a story, really. They're just her. In fact, he, he gets the episodes in the wrong order quite frequently, too. Um, so that doesn't matter. It, it, it is a, a completely, as it were, a completely new, um, new kind of film collage, uh, which is sort of like a fan letter to uh, her. It's sometimes described by the experimental um, film historians as an attack on Hollywood. I don't think it was an attack on Hollywood. I think it was partly a kind of homage to Hollywood, and, as, and this extraordinarily um, unique um, experimental uh, avant-garde collage. There was a very uh, interesting exchange in the conversation here last Friday between John Steseker and Michael Bracewell. Michael said that he thought of Cornell as a pop artist, and John disagreed, um, as I did too, silently, um, a, a pop artist with charm, I think, was the way that, that Michael talked about it. And I came across a note of Cornell's from November 1968 in his diaries, voluminous diaries, I should say. I mean, he kept a, a record of his days in an extraordinarily systematic manner. Um, and he also, he, this is thinking about his relationship with the experience of the passing of time. He would, 
he would like to record things like his conversations with Duchamp. They were, sometimes they went on for hours and he would be there sort of trying to write down his impressions of this conversation, talking about hold on to the moment. He's like, holding on to a moment, moving out of a moment. I mean, it's, 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 quite, it's quite complicated. Um, so uh, this little note in his um, uh, Cornell's November 68, it's prompted by an article in the Christian Science Monitor, his favorite reading material, uh, to look back at his Penny Arcade. And this, this is um, Penny Arcade portrait of Lauren Bacall. You can see the photograph of Lauren Bacall. I'm sorry, it's a rather dark slide. Um, but, uh, and he says, that the quotation goes, Pop art, bred in city streets and byways, is relevant to only certain aspects of life today. Addressing itself to us with the blatancy of a jukebox or penny arcade, the effect upon the senses may be a shock. And so Cornell starts thinking about writing a rationale, apology or whatever, of penny arcade. And he mentions a glorious metamorphosis of the term. And I wonder if he means that, that actually this, in a sense, is that for him. And it's very interesting. This is a, an extraordinarily graceful box. It's very, um, it's very ordered. It's very serene in some ways. And not like sort of jukebox penny arcade. And yet clearly Cornell is remembering as he writes about penny arcades. He writes about Sixth Avenue it changes over time. He writes about second-hand stores where they bought movie stills by the hundred, a nice shop where the Civil War litho sheets were bought. Um, most atmospheric places were, uh, where there was a fortune-telling gypsy, huge emporium, a record bin. So there's a kind of a mass of, of modernity and as a well, popular culture in Sixth Avenue, which Cornell takes and it seems to me sort of transforms in some way while retaining... Uh, a, a sense of nostalgia for, for the past. I'm, I'm very, I haven't really decided about this, but I, I'm very interested in, in the basic theme of the exhibition, which is that Cornell longed to travel to Europe and that he was constantly referencing travel, hotels, um, the, the great cities of Europe that he never saw. But I feel that it's always mediated through New York. I think, you know, essentially... He, he's part of New York. And of course, New York itself is this, is this sort of melting pot of multiple cultures with the oldest modernity in the world. I mean, it's a very, very striking how sort of old the modernity of, of New York is. So I, I, uh, I, I wonder about that. But I, one of the, another of the quotations that I've chosen here from Nabokov, and it seemed to be that Nabokov's nostalgia for a lost Europe in a way, is not dissimilar to Cornell's nostalgia for a lost Europe. Um, this is from um, a, a short story of Nabokov's. Um, in the early years of this century, a travel agency on Nevsky Avenue displayed a three-foot-long model of an oak-brown international sleeping car. In delicate verisimilitude, it completely outranked the painted tin of my clockwork trains. Unfortunately, it was not for sale. One could make out the blue upholstery inside, the embossed leather lining of the compartment walls, their polished panels, inset mirrors, tulip-shaped reading lamps, and other maddening details. Spacious windows alternated with narrower ones, single or germinate, and some of these were of frosted glass. In a few of the compartments, the beds had been made. 
The then great and glamorous Nord Express was never the same after World War I, consisting solely of such international cars and running but twice a week connected St. Petersburg with Paris. And it, Nabokov is remembering his childhood. He's remembering um, the great days of, of travel in, in this comfort. But also, his memory is kind of mediated through this model. And I think that's very interesting. I think the model of the sleeping car that, that Nabokov falls, falls in love with has a sort of a resonance with Cornell's compressed, but at the same time infinitely expansive uh, boxes. Um, this is uh, one of the great uh, works that is in the exhibition, um, Habitat for a Shooting Gallery. Uh, broken glass, very, very violent. I mean, somehow the effect of this violence in Cornell is extraordinary, um, given that it, it's rare. And it does seem to be, it's 1943, so it seems to be a response to and a meditation on the disaster that has overfallen the Europe that he loved and that he wished he had been able to visit. And this is the last slide I have, which is a wonderful box called Forgotten Game. Um, now, I have written at length about this. I don't want to re repeat everything, but I think it encapsulates Cornell's a sort of nostalgia for childhood, a nostalgia for certain kinds of machines in penny arcades, uh, the idea of um, philosophical and educational toys, very, very popular in the 19th century, and Cornell was fascinated by that idea. Uh, this one, Forgotten Game, um, as you can see, there, there's, a, there's a channel running uh, diagonally across from the top right, and it goes down, 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 down. And you, I, I've shown you two photographs, because as so often with objects and with sculpture and with three-dimensional things, one photograph doesn't do the job. <laughs> you really need two here. So I've shown you one on the mic because you see the, the birds who are behind the circular windows. On the left, you can see at the top, there's a little opening, and you put the ball into the opening, and it then runs down. You can hear it running. I have actually heard it running. <laughs> it's running down. It runs down, runs down. And then at the bottom, it hits a bell behind cracked glass, which seems to me to really, uh, I mean, you know, it, it's something that moves. So it's a kind of, it's a toy you can play with, which gives you pleasure however old you are. But at the same time, it's extremely nostalgic. Um, and the bell makes a very faint ding. It doesn't ring properly. It's, you know, just a little, a little ding uh, with Forgotten Game. And I want to just bring in the Proust quotation at this point because I want to try to tie up what I think is a very, very important connection. I mean, Cornell loved Proust. I mean, he, he certainly read it. So I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not stepping out of a fairly well-known connection. Um, but it seems to me that the way, in this key passage, uh, is, this is from Le Temps Retrouvé, it's the final volume of A la Recherche du Temps Perdu, Time Regained, Le Temps Retrouvé. And it's that moment when Proust, with actually typical humour, there is humour in that book, you may not believe it, but there is, he's having to step aside because he's going into the last great social party he ever goes to, which is at the Guermont. But he has to step aside because there's a car coming through the, the entrance. And he steps aside and he loses his footing. 
and he finds himself with one foot on one level and one on another. So, at the moment when, writing myself after stumbling, I placed one foot on a paving stone a little higher than its neighbour, all my discouragement vanished before the same happiness that at different epochs of my life I received from the sight of trees that I thought I recognised during a car journey around Baalbek, the sight of the bell towers of Martinville, the taste of a madeleine dipped in tea, so many other feelings I've spoken of, which the most recent works of Van Teuil seem to me to have synthesised. The happiness I had just felt was indeed the same as that I had experienced on eating the madeleine, whose profound causes I had intended one day to investigate. And I just wanted to link that with two uh, extracts from Cornell's diaries. Well, I think he's talking about the same kind of thing that Proust is talking about. He's talking about the incident completely by chance, unplanned, that kind of just touches a memory, brings it back, puts it all into focus again. This is from, uh, on, on the next page, February 27, 1945. On the way to the 922, the gulls overhead brought a strong evocation of the house on the hill and Melba, a link, the reassurance and continuity of a thread so tenuous, so hard at times to keep hold of, or perhaps to communicate to others, is what I mean. And then another one, which I think is talking about the same kind of thing. Worked late on Owl Box. Have satisfactory feeling about clearing up debris on cellar floor. Sweepings represent all the rich cross-currents and ramifications that go into the boxes, but which are not apparent, I feel at least, in the final result. See watchmaker's sweepings in Cabinet of Vials. But I think it's Cornell, when he registers in his diaries, these moments, these, it's, 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 it's a kind of epiphany, if you like, but it's when... He's, he, he remembers the associations build up and accumulate and gives him this feeling of, of happiness, of satisfaction, which is exactly what, what I think Proust is, is talking about in A la recherche du temps perdu. Because he, I mean, he put thousands and thousands of pages to explaining, uh, examining the causes of, this, of the happiness behind these memories, and Cornell did it in his boxes. Um, but... Uh, I think, that, uh, I think that's very important. Um, and I'll just end, just as, as a little coda, if you like, to show you an example of, of a different kind of time-based work, if you like, by Cornell, which is one of the books that he altered. This is an agricultural manual, several a thousand pages long, which he bought from a bookstore, which he loved in New York, and when he bought it, he was actually quite resentful because the chap selling it said, look to this you know, sort of gaunt chap buying a large manual of agriculture in French. And he looked at Connolly and he said, well, I suppose some people could use it and you could use it to press ties with. And Cornell deeply resented that comment. Now, I'll just show you just a few examples. Because uh, the point is, you're meant, like the sand fountains, you're meant to hold it and turn it upside down and shake things. This, you're meant to just flip the pages. And there's some of them, there's a sort of flip book effect at the end. And in one, and one of them, he had cut out a circle with a little headline underneath, a circle looking through several pages to a photograph. And the circle has a tiny little uh, fragment of the photograph. And underneath, he says, um, Is this the surface of the moon? 
you turn the next page, and it's a little bit larger, and then you turn the next page, and it's a head of Romanesque sculpture in stone. So he, he's, he's playing with your, with your expectations there. And, um, but, but, but so I'm, I'm suggesting that you know, the, the multiple ways in which time can be, can be uh, used as a way of thinking about Cornell's work, I mean, both in the way that he actually literally addresses time, uh, the way that he incorporates sort of time-based experience into his work, um, and also that more poetic uh, notion that perhaps in the boxes there's a moment of being out of time. And I'm just going to end with, with the uh, quotation from Fernando Pessoa, The Book of Disquiet, very strange book. I don't know what time is. I don't know what, if any, is the truest way of measuring it. I know that the way the clock measures time is false. It divides time spatially from the outside. I know that the time kept by the emotions is false too. They divide not time, but the sensation of time. The time of dreams is also wrong. In dreams we brush past time, sometimes slowly, sometimes fast. And what we experience is either fast or slow, according to some peculiarity in the way it flows, the nature of which I do not understand. Thank you very much for an excellent talk. We do have five minutes for questions if anyone has a question they would like to ask Dawn. Um, although you say that he, obviously he was in Manhattan, when I look at this work, if I didn't know, I would think this was a European artist. And the iconographically, it looks like Middle Europe. It looks like old Europe to me. So where does the American come into this? Because I, I don't feel that... You talk about penny arcades... But where, where does America fit into this? I mean, but, I mean I, I'm not disagreeing with you. One thing would be that he was amassing the imagery he was using in the shops and the second-hand stores, etc., of New York. So New York itself, in a sense, that was his, his, his sort of hunting ground for this imagery. And he talks about the kinds of places he buys these things, now, I mean, you're quite right to say, well, you know, you can't really call him a, a pop artist. And I'm not trying to call him a pop artist for a second, but Penny Arcade, well, I'm not sure that one can... I think some of the collages have some materials that would relate more to the kinds of photographic material that was beginning to appear in the 50s and 60s in the magazines. But, I mean, and of course there's Hollywood. I mean, there's, there's film. I think it's a very interesting question. I'm not at all sure of the answer. Certainly, I mean, interestingly, of course, the Europeans, for the films, and Rose Hobart was just one, but he did other films that he showed in this, this other meeting I was describing, that the Europeans were very snooty about, because they said, well, you've seen all this before. There was a question. Did you have a quick question? Just the um, catalogue, the MoMA exhibition, the, the last essay in there, I can't remember the name of the writer, but he was, very yeah, he was very specifically linking Cornell's work to different American painters, and you can see the connections. I mean, I can't remember all their names, but that, that, it was made in that catalogue. Yes. That was he was specifically discussed in relation yes, to America. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah. I mean, there are some, there are some wonderful boxes. I, I talk about this too, um, where the, you've got a sort of trail of what looks like bird excrement, white, but it also looks like a Pollock yeah, <laughs> streak. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. And he was, yeah. and he was, he was also close to Mondrian in, yeah. in New York. Um, so, I mean, I know that I'm, I'm pushing it slightly when I try to make surrealism so central to his work, but it's, uh, that was my job today. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, the Cornell exhibition is on until the end of September, so if you haven't been, please do visit. Um, but just for today, uh, please join me in thanking again Professor Dawn Addis for her excellent talk. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.